Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Year two is so much easier than year one in a hundred different ways, and I'll probably repeat that a bunch. Uh, I think you'll see guys playing a lot harder, a lot freer, and a lot faster this year. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast, the Husker Fan Sports Show with Dave, Honky, Mac, and Boomer. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast. I'm your host, David Gaspers, and I'm with Boomer. Well, we're sorry the others couldn't join us tonight. Uh, Mac is probably hard at work, and Honky might be passed out and trouserless on a golf course somewhere. So if any of our Redcast listeners have found him, just please drop him off. There will be a reward. (laughs) That is true. It is uh, the Go Big Redcast summer vacation, and uh, Honky and Mac actually worked uh, last night. They've recorded this interview with the Pick 6 podcast, and we'll be giving that to you here shortly. But we just wanted to do a quick introduction with me and Boomer. Uh, Boomer, uh, we, we are uh, actually right in the, the summer vacation, but also the start of talking days in uh, football land. Uh, it's media days for most of the major conferences this week. The Big Ten held theirs this Thursday and Friday in Chicago. Uh, I've been trying to listen to pretty much everything I possibly can. Not so much on Nebraska in the sense that I've pretty much heard everything that Scott Frost uh, can say about um, our program and have also read from pretty much every local scribe what Nebraska may or may not do. But I've been trying to pick up some of the more national Big Big Ten feeds on their uh, perception of Nebraska as well as the Big Ten West. I think one of the interesting things that came out of Media Days The Cleveland Plain Dealer, for some reason, unbeknownst to us, the Big Ten does not do their own preseason poll, right? Correct, correct. Um, But they they have the Cleveland newspaper do that. And Nebraska was picked to win the Big Ten West. Um, I think there's 34 media uh, that vote in this. And it was a tie from first place perspective, Nebraska and Iowa. But apparently, when you break down that voting, Nebraska had more more points uh, based off of the other positions. And uh, so they they pegged us to win the Big Ten West, which it's kind of been interesting. I, I've listened to a lot of uh, these interviews from uh, SiriusXM and, and some of the, uh, again, national folks. And it, it's like everybody's questioning, like, why did these media types pick Nebraska to win the Big Ten West? But when you kind of ask them, they kind of just end up defaulting about like, well, I, I had no one else better to choose almost, you know? So right. what, what are your takes on kind of maybe this kind of like weird lukewarm reception? Like we, we win the, this poll to win the Big Ten West from the media, but everybody's like, really? Well, some of it is, I think, you know, from a national perspective, if you're just a casual fan, it's probably that surprise. We haven't been good for a while. Why would you pick us? And I think, you know, from the more, you know, in-tune sports writers, you know, you have to pick somebody to win the division. And if you're breaking it down and if you're looking at the pieces that are in place, you know, you've got the most dynamic quarterback possibly in the conference and definitely in your division and a favorable schedule, why wouldn't you pick Nebraska? If you're going to pick somebody, 
hey, why not? I mean, it's probably the safe uh, safe bet to pick them. You know, Iowa's probably your other safe pick. Uh, so th- that doesn't surprise me that those two would have the biggest chance to get the most first-place votes. So it, it would be the sensible choices from my perspective. So once we get our press credentials and we're allowed to vote, and then... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, the, it is interesting the fact that a 4-8 and eight team uh, is the safest pick in the Big Ten West. I think Iowa's the other safe pick, and that's probably why they yeah. got as many first-place votes. But, they'll, you know, Nebraska, from a, a point total standpoint, still wins that poll. So it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting just division in general. It's just really hard. I mean, everybody's clustered, like you said, outside of Illinois. It's You can make a reasonable argument for basically anyone to win that conference. You can argue Wisconsin because they do it all the time. Minnesota's got, you know, some buzz and they're up and up. You can't ever seem to count Northwestern out because every time you expect them to suck, they somehow win the division. You know, who knows what they do. So it's it's wide open, and I, I'd have a hard time ranking everybody in the division outside of Illinois. Let me ask you that, Boomer. Outside of Illinois, which uh, maybe Lovey Smith finally has some of those freshmen that have played two full seasons now and are starting to mature in his program and, and can turn Illinois around. If you just exclude Illinois, those other six teams, which most people say are, are pretty even from a progression. Everybody feels like the Big Ten West is on the on the up and up, but they can't all be on the up and up, right? Someone has to regress. Who is regressing at least this year in the Big Ten West that isn't necessarily being predicted to do so? Uh, again, that's tricky because, you know, how are you going to say who's regressing? I mean, the natural choice to pick who's going to regress from where they were last year would have to be Northwestern. You know, winning the division last year, you'd think they would probably take a step back this year with some changes, although they do have, you know, Hunter Johnson coming in as quarterback, so they might be able to reload pretty nicely there. But, you know, that's the, again, the safe bet is they're probably not going to win the division this year, so why not pick them as the obvious choice? And, again, Minnesota is always a questionable team. I have no idea what to make of P.J. Fleck on any given day, and I'm not sure he knows what to make of himself half the time either with the stuff he talks <laughs> about, and I don't know who does. You know, our good friends with the $5 bits of broken chair, we'll have to ask them their opinions one of these days and see what they think. That's a good point, Boomer. There's some Minnesota love out there. I think it's ESPN in particular with their FPI or whatnot. Really likes Minnesota, and I'm trying to wrap my head around it because I, I think some of the reason some of the media – takes Nebraska is their their faith that typically the team with the best quarterback is gonna gonna win more games or not and that's Adrian Martinez but I think the issue with Minnesota to me is like I don't know even know who their quarterback should be no and I don't know if they know it and so it's intriguing that Minnesota has that much much um attention yeah, I think it's just a lot of, again, faith in a coach that's shown he can make progress at other schools. I mean, yeah. you know, whichever Michigan directional school he was at, Western Michigan, if I remember right, and or was it Central? Either one. So I think it was Western, yeah. Yeah, Western sounds right. We know it's not Eastern Michigan. We'll rule that one out. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he, it's just like Frost. He's got a track record of being able to turn programs around. They showed some life last year coming off a bowl bowl win so you know maybe you'd expect them to have some momentum but again like you said i don't know who their quarterback is i don't know what their offensive identity is i'm not sure again if they do either so they're kind of a interesting cipher this year i'll be intrigued to see what the gophers do all right let's hand this over to hockey and mac and the pick six podcast all right we want to welcome you back to the redcast uh we are Honored here. Uh, it's our first time, Mac, that we've ever done any kind of interview. Yes, inaugural. Yeah, the inaugural interview on the Redcast. <laughs> and we're with Brett Ciancia of Pick 6 Previews. First off, I want to welcome you to the show, Brett. 
Yeah, thanks, Hockey and Mac. Uh, it's truly an honor on my end, too, to be the first ever guest. So I'm uh, really excited to talk Nebraska football. Made my first trip out to Lincoln last fall and had nothing but great things to say, despite at the time being winless. You guys still, you know, still had that big time feel and it was everything I thought it would be. So, uh, yeah, excited to talk some Husker football here. For those that are, that are maybe new to, to Pick 6, Pick 6 Previews is a college football preview company. It launched in 2012, and since then, uh, their BCS and Power 5 season predictions have been rated the most accurate in America by Stass and Accuracy. Uh, Brett, you've been a featured guest on other radio and podcasts all around the country. You have votes for several awards like the Blitnikoff and the All-American team. So maybe we can throw in a couple good words for J.D. Spielman there for the <laughs> Blitnikoff. Uh, but this is your eighth season, and uh, your 2019 season previews is going to go on sale Monday, July 22nd. Right on. Yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, that's right. Uh, our big season preview is coming out Monday. I think this will air, like you said, Saturday or something like that. So it should be right around release date there. Uh, what we do is we dig into all 65 Power 5 programs, about 1,200 to 1,700 word previews, so probably three times that you get in the magazine. And, yeah, tons of stats and graphics and advanced stats, and we'll talk into some of those that I look at in, in particular uh, later on the show. But, but yeah, it's been uh, in seven years we've rated uh, amongst the best. Or we're actually number one in Power 5, and, uh, and uh, yeah, really excited for the season. You mentioned you've done radio shows and other podcasts and stuff, so, I mean, you know, what all have you done? I mean, this how'd you get into doing what you're doing, which is really cool? Uh, you know, just uh love college football from day one. Uh actually one of the uh one of the plays that actually formed my, my youth was the Eric Crouch Oklahoma reverse pass. Uh, I mean yeah. that that as a youngster seeing that happen, I was like, damn, this sport's incredible. Like um so that sticks out, like that that whole year, I guess, was kind of my first one of memory. But really just growing up with my dad, he was a college football guy. Uh, it was all we did on Saturdays. We did the big, you know, order in food, four oh, TVs man. going. Like, so it was kind of a mini holiday every fall Saturday for my whole life. So just taking an interest to it. Me and my, my co-founder, Mike Nawaziad, he's, he's in a similar boat, loves college football. So yeah. And then just, uh, yeah, we built this, the website, really built the Twitter. Um, and people have really got onto the Twitter. I mean, that's kind of boomed and mm-hmm. you got us more of a, a I national. I love your Twitter feed, man. Yeah. You no, guys, thanks, I man. I love Thank your you. Twitter feed. Honestly, I was, it's, it's one I'm of my jealous. Yeah. I'm jealous. It's a great feed. I, I think it's great. Yeah, I thank you. Great. I mean, I, I try and I try and bring an original angle on the things because there's more. It's way too many like uh, copy paste accounts out there. But like, I, I try and just bring my own angle. And over the years, I think that that's been reflected by the follower count going up. And uh, and then yeah, so with the the radio, I've been on a uh, Fox Sports Radio, uh, Sirius XM. What else? Yeah, a lot of like regional ESPN accounts. Like uh, I've been on with uh, Sharp and Benning actually. Oh, in, uh, nice. Cool. Or Omaha. Yeah, those guys are awesome. Too. Those guys are great, man. And you want to yeah. talk about local knowledge and like high school level, uh, women's yeah. sports, men's sports, Olympic sports, boxing, you know, baseball, yeah. NBA. Those guys know yeah. it all. They are. And serious, you bring knowledge to Twitter. And trust me, I'm our Twitter guy. And uh, that's hard to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and you see a lot of, <laughs> you see a lot of nonsense yeah, nice. out there. So it's, it's, it is really cool. Yeah. Well, let's get started here. And we're going to talk about a lot of things. We'll, but kind of like Nebraska's recruiting, we're going to start from the inside out. Let's start with Nebraska. We'll, we'll work our way out to the Big Ten. Then we'll get some national flavor going. So starting with Nebraska, today Frost was at the uh, at Chicago at the Big, Big Ten, Ten Media, media Days. days. Uh, Mo Berry, Adrian Martinez, Khalil Davis, they were the three player representatives there. This is the part of the year. Now it's starting to feel real. Brett, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. When someone says Nebraska football to you, what's the impression? Are we still considered kind of a blue blood? Are we still a big deal nationally? Or, you know, what's the impression you have personally? 
you know, I don't know if I speak for everyone because I, you know, I study this stuff all year. But, uh, yeah, I think Nebraska is still cemented as a blue blood program. We put out a tweet uh, every year, a series of tweets, uh, where our followers all vote in. It's a simple yes or no question. Is so-and-so program a blue blood? Uh, the reason why we keep it so simple is because everyone has their own definition, right? It's all about perception. So law of large numbers, we had 120,000 votes, and there was a clear top eight chunk, and Nebraska was right in the middle of that upper pack. So nationally, I think the brand is still there. People still remember the national titles. Uh, I mean, they remember just the physical dominance that, that went on for, you know, 30 or 40 years. It's hard to erase that. Uh, I, know, I know Mike Riley tried his best. But, um, <laughs> but no, I think that, I think that at its core, you still think of, uh, you still think of a power program. You think of a blue blood program. I know for me personally, um, I, I think first off the fans, I mean, the sellout streaks untouched since 1962, just the most supportive fan base in sports. I had a chance, like I said, to be out there last fall and it was everything I thought it'd be, but more so just a unified state, uh, sports state where this is everything. Uh, you don't have that anywhere else where this is the only major college in the state. There's no professional teams. So really it's everything moving in the same direction with, with Nebraska football. And it's kind of the identity of the state, which I think is really unique and pretty cool. Because you know, being on the East Coast, it's all about pro sports, or you know, even in the South, there's interstate rivalries. So Nebraska football is everything there, and it's it's pretty cool to see. So you also think of the walk-on program from that regard too, where it's such a such a state pride thing to to walk on to Nebraska, and, and that really helped with their depth, uh, especially in the '80s, '90s, but even today. Nebraska should be competing for conference championships at the very least. So need to be back in the Big Ten race, probably winning the West most years, which would then set up that maybe. You know, once every five or ten years, you're, you're winning the conference and being in the playoff hunt. So I think uh, and I, I think it'll trend that way. But, yeah, certainly uh, I, I, I don't want to speak for everyone because I know that at least the younger generation probably has a different view. But, uh, yeah, I think the fan base has, has definitely helped keep them relevant and, uh, and, and in the you know, national discussion every year. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Frost, even on day one when he was hired here, he talked about a unity of purpose within the, the state. And you mentioned that, Brett, about how the state would all get behind the, the program. but. That was issues that we had at different times throughout the last 10, 15 years, depending upon the Callahan or Riley Those era. Big issues. It, was, it, was a, it was a big issue. Since, and since Solich was fired, the fan base has had issues. And there, there are some inherent advantages that Nebraska would have during the 80s or during the 90s. Some of those have gone away. But one of the things that hasn't gone away is that support. When you can yeah. bring recruits to a spring game and there's 90,000 people in the stands, you know, there's still value in that. That was one thing I was going to ask you too. That you know, with attendance being down throughout the college football landscape, and Nebraska still showing this kind of attention, if that is now like a new a new recruiting tool we can use, you know, that's a real one. Oh, uh, just- yeah, it abs- it absolutely is. And another road trip I was on last year, I, I went out to L.A. and uh, and did a Friday night game at the Rose Bowl, UCLA versus Utah, and mm-hmm. then the next day followed it up at the Coliseum. So I did a doubleheader at USC and UCLA. Oh, cool. Uh, and I and I will say though, uh, I was extremely disappointed with the fan turnout there. No one cared out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you're walking around, walking around UCLA's campus. I'm talking to some students, asking them, you know, you know, where do you guys usually tailgate? Like, you know, where are you heading over to the game? They didn't even know there was a game that night. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, when you when you're a recruit, I mean, doesn't that just break a, your heart? I mean, doesn't that just oh, kind of tear it's, you it's apart? It's terrible. Oh. Yeah, it's terrible. Especially having been to a lot of these Big Ten, uh, you know, stadiums and towns. It's it's crazy. So, but basically, what I'm getting at is, if you put yourself in a recruit's shoes, yeah, I know that geographically, it's it's probably pretty far from all the talent bases. But once you're out there, you can feel the energy. 
why wouldn't you want to play in front of, uh, you know, a sold-out stadium every week and, God forbid, a, a sold-out spring game? Like, yeah. why wouldn't you want to, you know, sur- uh, surround yourself with an environment that loves football? So I think, like you said, it'll become an increasing advantage. Just, it's just a matter of getting kids there to feel it in person. Getting them there is key. Once they're there, you can you can feel the energy in Nebraska, even coming off of four and eight teams. Lincoln's an amazing town that way. And, and one of the things I like about Frost, and there's a, there's a way of how we do things at Nebraska that work here. And I wouldn't expect them to work at USC or work at you know, Alabama the same way, but we just, uh, we have a way of doing it here. You mentioned the walk on, but it's also recruiting locally. And we really went away from that for, for a number of years. And Frost has talked about, we're going to make sure we get these kids local here first. And honestly, you can build half of your recruiting class in any given year within what we call the 500-mile radius, basically this state and the surrounding states. Any good year, Nebraska should be able to get, let's say, 10 out of 20 kids just from this. And then you're always going to go national from there. Nebraska always will. There's nothing new with that. So we're going to hit Texas like we already have in this class. We're going to hit Florida like we have. Arizona, California, where Martinez is from. We're going to get guys from all over. But the base of that class starts local. And and we went away from that. We really did for, for a number of years. And it hurt us. Well, that's when you see transfers. This is what we were very guilty of. And, and like in those days when you're not winning games, if you're winning anything and we were sort of winning some recruiting battles, that was like all you hung your hat on. But if you look back, so many of them didn't pan out because they just they weren't a bright fit for this far away. It takes a certain kind of player. It takes a certain kind of mentality to come from Florida, to come from California, to come from anywhere that far, play in Nebraska and love it and live it. And I think Frost understands what that looks like in a player. Brett, what you guys have done over there at Pick 6, you guys are great at, at predicting and projecting forward. And right now, Nebraska, this is a good time to be a Husker fan when it comes to hype and when it comes to projection. There's a lot of it out there. And for maybe the first time that I can remember in quite a while, the hype isn't coming from internally. It's not coming yep. from the state out. It, it feels like it's I'm flowing. physically uncomfortable. <laughs> it, <laughs> it feels like it's flowing in from the outside in. And, and we have a bunch of our followers. Are, I call them Husker realists. They're the ones that are, you know, yeah. sitting there saying, you know, prove it, show it to me. I'm not, you know, I'm not ready to accept it. But man, we're getting this hype. They, and I got to ask you, is this, is this warranted? Do you think? Or is this, are we, are we talking too quick? Yeah, you're right. It is kind of the opposite of usual. Usually you see, uh, the Husker boards light up with the Kool-Aid drinkers, right? You call them, <laughs> or, uh, yeah, it's you me. Know, every year yeah. you're a top five team, but, but you've yeah, seen so my posts. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> well, my take on it is, uh, you know, not all four and eight seasons are created equal. You had the four and eight year with Riley, his final year. Then you had the four and eight last year. So, you know, to a casual college football observer, they would say, ah, they stayed the same. There's no improvement. But uh, what I what I dig into in a formula I've created called Game Grader, uh, it digs into the key stats of a game uh, and really paints the picture deeper than just a win loss record. And and it really showed that there was significant improvement from uh, from the seventeen to eighteen teams here, despite the identical record. Okay. Uh, so they moved up thirteen spots. It's from fifty six to forty third out of the sixty five Power Five teams. Uh, so not not incredible, but there was an improvement there. Yeah. Uh, and what and what it really shows you in number form is that. You know, it proved what we all watched last year and that they, they really left a lot of uh, winnable games on the field. You know, you think of the, the Troy game, the Colorado game especially, yeah. uh, Northwestern game, blowing the 10-point lead. Uh, even Ohio State, you had you had Ohio State pretty close. So it, in my opinion, and according to my game grader formula, this was more like a seven or eight win team last year when you dig into it. Is that kind of uh, that's that, where they landed for you is about seven or eight? Yeah, that's yeah. kind of and what they when, felt like. I mean, at the end of yeah, the season, right? Yeah, that's it. Kind of, it kind of makes sense. It, it kind of puts context, like a number, on what we saw. I, I love this formula. Uh, and then, so we look at that. It was about a seven or eight win team, and there's a couple factors I look at. So 
obviously the second year of a staff, there's a huge bonus coming. Uh, you know, more familiarity with the roster from the coach's perspective, from the player's perspective, they're learning the new scheme. It's their second spring, their second fall camp and second season together. So huge bonus usually with the second year staff. Oh yeah. Also the schedule flips. Nowhere else in the country is it as crucial what, what teams you draw in the cross division because how the Big Ten East is set up where you have your four powers in the mm-hmm. top 20 and then a huge drop off to Indiana, Maryland, Rutgers. So yeah. in some years you get stuck with all three. That's a landmine. But uh, this year I think it reverses where Nebraska gets one out of three and uh, Iowa gets two and Wisconsin gets three. So it's almost a game or two advantage on the other contenders. So maybe that's where some of the hype's being generated from. So I, I don't go as far as putting Nebraska in the top 10. I've seen some, some hot takes out there. I yeah. think I'm more in the, more in the crew of, you know, around top 20. I think it's a legit top 20 team right now, but with the potential that it could grow, uh, as the season goes on, especially with this manageable schedule. Well, and if, and if you look at it like you did and you say it's, you know, a seven to eight win team, it isn't that big of a jump then to, for this year to, you know, to contend for the West. You at least know what you have going into the season. You know, last year you didn't know what you had until you put it on the field and they played a few games. Like this year, they know where their weapons are. They know who their guys are and they've been able to improve with them for, you know, so that's, you know, that first to second year jump is <laughs> well, just one I, of a million yes, reasons. A year ago, we have a, maybe we have a starting quarterback in Jebbia yeah. lead oh. one week before the season even starts and we don't have a single snap from a quarterback on on the field and right now we have a returning potential Heisman candidate whether that's hype or not the point is that's the difference between one year and the next I mean the 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 change and then to your point the schedule when you flip it around you're not playing either the Michigan schools and you're playing Maryland and Indiana this is the one thing I, I got in an argument with a with a colleague of mine last year who thought we should eventually redshirt Martinez about four or five games in the year because he thought the year was just, it was going down the tubes, right? He's like, redshirt Martinez, you know, it, we're wasting him. I'm like, are you kidding me? He gets an opportunity. How many times can you get a play at Camp Randall, at the Big House, at Northwestern, oh, yeah. at Iowa City, at the Horseshoe? What training? I mean, this season, just from a, at least from a venue standpoint, this is going to feel like a breeze to him. I mean, he doesn't have to go to all those places, but he's experienced all of them. Doesn't guarantee us a single win, but I'm just saying what we're coming back to in year two all of a sudden, we go from being the staff that was brand new to everything, and now we've got a staff that's back, quarterback that's back, yeah. and players are back. They've gone through that strength right. and conditioning, a good strength and conditioning program for a second year, and then you're starting the year off playing a Colorado team that's replacing their staff. I think it's South Alabama or Northern Illinois, one of those two are replacing their staff. Ohio State has a new coach. I mean, there's just changes, and, and we have actually are starting to show a little consistency. Yeah, yeah and you touched on it. the second year of strength and conditioning with this new staff is crucial. You'll, it was kind of hard to build that within the first spring ball and fall camp. Mm-hmm. So I think that you'll see another 12 months stacked on, definitely some improvements along the lines, uh, which will be crucial. A uh, decent amount of, of returning production on defense, second-year bonus like we talked about. Um, yeah, there are a lot of reasons to, to put them atop the North. In fact, I'll give a little spoiler that I did pick Nebraska to win the West. Ah, um, so, yeah, that's my pick there on that side. There is a lot of reason to, to have them this high. And I think the question you had was uh, most improved team in the country. That's tough. I think that uh, if you're looking on total wins, I think mm. that I'd probably put TCU and Michigan State up there. Yeah. Um, yeah. These are two programs with really proven coaching coaching staffs uh, in player development and win conversion. Uh, both were wrecked with injuries last year, but now they're all healthy and loaded with talent for 2019. And uh, I think to TCU and Michigan State might be the top two in that category. I mean, it's it's been plaguing Nebraska for years and really came to a head last year. The, the penalties need to be cleaned up. They, they continue to you know shoot themselves in the foot. 
um, just the self-sabotage needs to go away. And kind of the, the great way to paint, uh, to really paint this picture is Northwestern. They're, they're a case study here. They don't have much star talent. They're not even that great in the stat metrics on offense or defense. But they're great at two things. They lock it down in the red zone, and then they're incredibly disciplined in penalties. They were the uh, number one least penalized team in the country. And, uh, and it very well could have flipped about four or five of their games when you think about it. On the polar opposite of that last year was Nebraska, where they had the star talent on paper. <laughs> yeah. And that's never, that's never an issue with them in the West. They're always the most, you know, the highest five year recruiting average in the West. But it really was, especially the first half of the year, penalties, man. Uh, the first half of the year, they averaged 10 penalties per game. And at least towards the end of the year, that they did cut that in half. Over the back half of the year, they cut it down to five per game. But they're really just boneheaded mistakes. Colorado game, I can think yeah. of right away. And, you can argue mm-hmm. that it was maybe a bad call, but either way, it, it didn't have to be had, the, the hit. So, I mean, just it. That, that's a game right there. That's one. I mean, so these penalties are crucial. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're drive killers and just momentum killers, too. And a lot of them were just those perfectly timed drive killers. Oh, the, you know? the Gosh, Purdue yeah. game alone, the Purdue game. We, yeah. But it was it was one comical error after another. And I, I did feel like that was, you know, after that Purdue game, I did feel like that was one area I started to see a decline in. As a Husker fan over the last 10 years, lots of times teams didn't improve on the things that hurt them in the first part of the season. That's something we have not seen a lot of. And that was something that I felt like I did see with Scott Frost. It's like penalties were a problem in the beginning part of the year. That sort of cleaned itself up. Well, it started to get better. We didn't have a very good running attack. We couldn't land on the guy. That started to get better. You know, our clock management sort of, everything seemed to get a little bit better. Now, you know, that's the evolution of a quarterback. That's the evolution of an offense or play calling. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like, but... Whatever it was, I hadn't seen a Nebraska team improve as the as the year went on in a while. One of the things that I recall is Tom Osborne talked about when he was on the first college football committees for the playoff. He and Alvarez, they would look through all the games and all the teams. And one of the stats that they would pull out uh, as being their most important was average starting field position. And Osborne mm-hmm. one time said that average started field position, it encompassed penalties exactly like you said. Penalties are one of the things that play into it. Turnovers play into it. Special teams, fourth down defense or third down defense in our case last year, all those things add up to where does your average starting field position start. And that was something that Alvarez and Osborne would look at. And so I'm really curious because you guys have had a ton of success with how you guys do your projections. What are penalties being one of them? What are some of the other things? What do you kind of look at when you're looking at what makes a team great and what makes a team not so great? Yeah, uh, that's a tough one. I mean, there's not really just one metric. Um, it's more so kind of my approach. I, I watch an insane amount of game tape, uh, spring games. Mm-hmm. I listen to local radio shows and podcasts and, and talk with coaches about their personnel. So I really try to go straight to the source. Uh, I try to avoid a lot of the national hot takes and, and ESPN articles, that kind of stuff, until at least until my uh, my publication and predictions are complete because I hate to cloud my thoughts there. But uh, in terms of the numbers and stats, there are two that I look at kind of at a macro level for a program, uh, win conversion and player development. I, I, I kind of put those buzzwords on them, but basically what they are is I dig back and look at the, the five-year recruiting average of a program mm-hmm. and then how that relates to their wins on the field. And, uh, and how many players they're sending to the pros. Yeah, yeah. So you start with that raw number. So Nebraska's 25th in five year recruiting. Uh, but they're pretty low on actual wins. So which, which tells me that the Riley staff wasn't developing the players mm-hmm. and converting it to on, you know, on field wins. So, uh, you'll see in, in my season preview, I have that broken out for every program. Um, that it's, it's kind of the ones you'd expect to be at the top of these categories that are always over, you know, always overproducing compared to their, media expectations you think of tcu uh michigan state utah um even iowa state under matt campbell 
mm-hmm. has been unbelievable at this. So, and then on the on the flip side, more importantly, the, the teams that recruit well and can't do anything with it, you know, your your usuals like Texas, USC, UCLA, where they're just squandering talent. It's not it's not that the recruiting rankings lied over fifteen years. It's just that the staffs haven't been able to develop players. So mm-hmm. uh, that that's one of a, kind of a macro level. I kind of look in and see. All right, well, here's your raw data, your recruiting rankings, but put it in context. What will the staff do with it? Another example is Washington, where, yeah, they only recruit around that number 20 or number 15 area, but the Peterson and uh, and Jimmy Lake and Kwiatkowski defensive coordinator staff, I mean, they're unbelievable player development. So even with that, that level of, you know, number 20 or 15, they're producing top five defenses every year. So we got to look at the coaching staff's track record because I'll take a, a proven staff over, you know, raw recruiting and, and an unproven staff every day. I'm sorry, who, who's got the best ratio of recruiting ranking and in, in players in the league and production? You know, in that win conversion, when you take your five-year recruiting rankings compared against uh, what they're actually producing on the field, uh, teams that overproduce compared to that expectation the best would be actually some of these familiar teams in the Big Ten West. It's Wisconsin's number one. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of makes Not sense surprising. when you think yeah, about it. They're, they're getting a lot of two-star guys from the upper Midwest developing them and going behind their power run game, which kind of sounds familiar when we're talking Nebraska. <laughs> uh, looks like they took the formula from the 80s and kind of made it modern day up there. But Wisconsin's up there, Northwestern, like we talked about, that probably pulls into that discipline we were talking about. Kansas State under Bill Snyder, Iowa with Ferenc. Sure. Uh, Mike Leach, Washington State. I was wondering kind if he'd be on that list. I, yeah, it's just a system guy. He doesn't need uh, he doesn't need five stars or four stars. He can just plug and play once he gets his yep. once he gets his system in place. He knows exactly uh, what he needs. Yep. And uh, yeah, I had mentioned also Utah and TCU grade very highly here, mm-hmm. and even Mike Gundy, Oklahoma State. So those are kind of the teams you'd expect to be up there, where maybe they have a, a, a mediocre recruiting uh, recruiting run, but their track record as a staff really elevates their uh, their, their win output. And and yeah, I tease some of those ones at the bottom. Texas, UCLA, Tennessee's been terrible in this category. Hmm. <laughs> um, you see them, you see, you see them winning every February on that National Signing Day show, or Butch Jones doing that brick by brick celebration. And uh, yeah. yeah, that hasn't amounted to much. So, well, sadly, um, yeah, we so, have to be on that list. Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe not. Well, Frost we haven't as recruited much, as high as, but, as the Tennessee. Well, though. but like in terms of the West, we have. In terms of the West, but nationally, the thing is, we haven't been a consistent top. 10 recruiting program like some of the Notre Dames and Tennessees that haven't been doing as well. Fair point. Either way, we haven't been developing. There's I know. No the development, <laughs> that's the thing for us. Nebraska is going to be at our best when we're developing at our best. Not Recruiting's never going to be, even under Osborne, even under our best years, we were not a routine top five or ten recruiting program. That just wasn't the way it was. Yeah, Where do you think we need to be for that? Like, what, like a fair assessment, if 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 we were to assume, and you don't have to assume this either, you can set your own parameters. But if we were to say that we kind of believe in in Frost and his staff's ability to develop players and, and also identify the the right type of players uh, for his scheme, like where do you think we would actually need to rank on a consistent scale nationally in recruiting? I think if you get top fifteen every year around there, that's kind of uh, what I feel. Yeah, I kind of. I, I'm not saying you need top five or top ten even. I think with his scheme. Uh, when, and what I think he can be as a developer, I know it's a short sample size, but, um, yeah, I think if you, I'll preface it this way, you can't be in the top 30 area. Uh, you're not gonna, it puts a ceiling on your program if you're consistently in the top 30 and recruiting. Yeah. Um, you gotta be more in that top 15 if you want to push, you know, competing with Ohio State, Michigan on the field and, and being in the playoff conversation. Um, so yeah, I think 15 is a good yeah. spot to be and they were close last year. Um, yeah. and that's coming off of four and eight years. So I wonder if you can start stacking some nine and 10 win years 
starting to get yeah. some positive buzz nationally again, right? Yep. I think well, that can grow easily. And so with that, Brett, I, I kind of want to maybe start to kind of segue over a little bit just into recruiting in general, not just Nebraska, but just in general. And some of this goes to like star rankings. And we've had this conversation on the Redcast now for two years about the value of them or maybe the legitimacy of them. They seem to kind of change. Some kid's a two-star and then he gets offered by Clemson and he becomes a four-star, right? And we're trying to kind of like get to that conclusion of what does a star really mean? Well, I said earlier, half of our class very well can come from that 500-mile radius. In fact, it should. We believe that Nebraska should be recruiting locally and and, and Frost believes that. And we're going to get a good half of that class from, from this local area. Well, just inherently, those kids, more times than not, are not going to be four- and five-star guys. They're not going to get a lot of the recognition. They're going to be two- and three-star players sometimes, but they are vital and crucial, and the history of Nebraska football shows those players that can be here for four or five years, get developed, and and move on. So this is a very open-ended question, but I mean, what are your opinions on recruiting star rankings? Yeah, so this is a it's a popular topic that comes up really every signing day area in February. And the, the one example that always comes up is, hey, well, J.J. Watt was a two-star. Mm-hmm, I mean, right. yeah, that, that, that's great. I mean, that that's great. And I think on an individual, you know, per player level, yeah, there's going to be some misses. But when you when you look across a class of 25-plus commits, uh, I think that that margin of error starts to decline. And then especially when you stack five-year, like a five-year average, I think that uh, they're more right than wrong. Sure. Um, that's that said, I think that certain areas of the country, like you mentioned, are are less reported on and less covered, and there's less seven on seven events. Which, by the way, I'm not a really big fan of. It's not real football. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Preach. Yeah, I, I have a buddy. I have a buddy who coaches out in Arlington, and he's told me the exact same thing. It's hilarious. So continue. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, you see these guys dancing around in these drills. Like, yeah, you, you dance around like that, a middle linebacker will take your head off. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, uh, aside from that rant, I think certain geographical areas are are covered more, obviously the southeast and the west coast Mm -hmm. compared to the Midwest. So, yeah, maybe that plays a little bit into it. But no, I think that on the in the grand scheme of things across a class of 25 players and then uh, a five year recruiting trend, I think you get a better picture than uh, than not. But get back to the point. It really depends on what the staff does with it. I mean, yeah. you can you can bring in the raw talent like UCLA and USC, and then if your staff isn't developing it or it doesn't have a, a successful scheme and a culture discipline, uh, then it really doesn't matter. So it, it is what you make of it, really. But I think that for a program to compete at a playoff or a conference champion level, you need to at least have that base. You need to have a, a solid core of recruiting, and they are more right than wrong. So to be in that top 20, top, top 15 star rankings uh, as a class, is crucial, and then it's really just up to the coaching staff to develop it from there. Let's get back to to recruiting here for a second. Okay, you know Nebraska. It's been out there that you know we've extended the most offers. I think yes. nationally, I think is the stat that I've seen. Spray and pray. That's, that's, <laughs> Spray that's and pray. But, you know, and then you hear about committable offers and not committable offers. Brett, is this something, are we making too big of a deal of this in Nebraska here? Is that a, is it a big deal? What, what's a committable offer to you, or how does that all work? Yeah, so you had touched on earlier in the show the 500-mile radius idea. Nebraska is, you know, at, at a bit of a geographical disadvantage. Uh, and with that, they need to really recruit coast to coast. And with that even further means they need to be contacting as many players as possible. You're talking about if you're a Southern California recruit, a five-star you could walk around the block and, and touch USC and UCLA, mm-hmm. you know, campus recruits and uh, you know, the staff, the stadiums, everything. So, but you're not going to casually stumble into Nebraska. So, I think Nebraska's number one in, in offers extended. I don't think that they're all, all committable. I mean, that's not saying that they're sending out 480, you know, official offers where you, everyone can sign on the dotted line right away. I think more so 
some of the bigger programs that may have the geographical disadvantage may use it more as like a, a recruiting flyer or like a postcard kind of thing where mm-hmm. like, hey, uh, you know, we've noticed you. We exist, Nebraska. Here's all of our, you know, our stats, our championship history, our coaching staff, everything. Come out and see us. I think so. I think they use the offer as kind of the the, the icebreaker. Yeah, it's almost um, like a save the date kind of deal. It's not yeah, official it's engagement, a, but like, hey, we should talk. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I think that it's taken on that kind of. Uh, and and like I said earlier, once you get out there, you can really feel it. So I think that that's that's crucial to really spread it around as much as possible if you get some uh if you get some bites you know bring them in and from there you always hear recruits come back from nebraska saying it was 10 out of 10 and then maybe that's an maybe you had it everywhere but it seems more so you hear that from nebraska where kids come in they're shocked they yeah. think it's in the middle of nowhere yes. but you know what honestly if it is just another great big 10 college town i mean if you wouldn't know where you are it's just the people there love beer and football so why not you why know, not it, stay for four years right yeah it <laughs> almost it almost works to our advantage if you know you have to get them here but the perception is almost so cornfield, you know, stadium way out and barns and everything like that, that if you can just get a guy here, they're like, oh, my gosh, I was completely lied to. This is just a town. Yeah. This is just a city. Oh, this yeah. is anywhere America. Brett, you mentioned. You know? and, it, and it works to our advantage. They're like, oh, well, and then everything else pops. Like, but they got crazy fans. Yeah. You know, you know, they, these guys are all about their football. Brett, you mentioned you've gone to, I mean, you've gone to games, obviously, all across the country, which is awesome. It's something I'm trying to do personally on vacations, whether it's just going to stadiums or we trying to get to about every single uh, stadium in the stadiums Big Ten. Stadiums and water towers. It's, 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 yeah, stadiums and water towers. It's a big deal for me. But <laughs> Lincoln, I mean, the, the perception of it just being Cornfields. Well, if you've been to Oxford, Mississippi, you know what it's like to be in a town of twenty five thousand. That's that's a major university city. Nothing against Oxford, and they have a great recruiting base down there. But my point is, Lincoln's a great university town, a great university city. And the biggest thing, the most important thing for Nebraska is just to get kids on the campus. If we get kids on the campus, that makes a huge difference. That is, yeah, big. absolutely. I mean, I think uh, Omaha itself being an hour away is, is a good uh, mm-hmm. a plus too. I mean, that's a, an up and coming city. You see on all those national lists of. I don't know what you, what you call that category, but up and coming mm-hmm. small to middle cities. Um, and yeah, I will admit you land in Omaha, you do drive that hour through the cornfields. But, uh, once you show up though, I mean, yeah, it's, it's like any college town. It's a capital city, uh, kind of like Madison, Wisconsin. I've been there. Yep. And if you want to talk middle of nowhere, I've been up to state college PA. That is literally in the middle of nowhere. But once you're, once you're on campus in Lincoln, it just feels at home, even to an outsider. It's got that, that positive vibe and, and especially on a college football Saturday. My God. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, Penn State, um, why do they go from four to two lanes right when you get to Penn State? Like the last 10 uh, miles. It's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. You, you crawl for, yeah, you crawl for an hour there, but, but yeah, so I think it stacks up like anywhere. I don't know why it has such a knock. I mean, maybe because it's far from an ocean, but really, if you're a football player playing football, who really cares about that? Yeah. You know, that um, kills me too. I mean, these guys, this is 365 anymore. Don't act like they're going to the beach and surfing and all that stuff. These guys are working. It's a joke. Well, you know what? To bring it back to football, actually, with that, I mean, maybe that goes back to identifying talent and who would fit with your culture because mm-hmm. you saw with Mike Riley pulling in a lot of this Calabrasca, they didn't really want to touch a weight. When, they didn't want to touch a squat rack when they came in. So I think that uh, it's all about finding players that fit what you want there. So, yeah, maybe not go after those, like, you know, the seven-on-seven heroes and, and really get some guys that want to grind in the weight room and, you know, build something there. So that, goes, that factors into it, too. Yeah, you got to look at how many armbands a guy has on. It always tells you like how much he wants to be recruited. If you got like seven armbands on. Well, I guess I guess Kenny Bell's the exception there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, shirt. Let's move on from the recruiting side of talking. Let's have a little fun here talking just national college football right now. 
Boomer, who, who can't make it, but Boomer on our show, he talks a lot about the postseason. If you were czar of college football, what would, what would Brett do with the, the postseason? Well, I think I'm definitely in the minority in this, where I, I like limiting the playoff. I think four is fine. Uh, you know, just dating back throughout its history, college football is a sport of perfection. There's so many teams nationally, over 100 teams. Uh, I guess really now it's the 65 Power 5 teams. But really, amongst the 12-game season, to really stand out, you got to go undefeated. Maybe one loss if you're a conference champ. But really, if you're talking about two loss and three loss and automatic uh, conference champ winners getting into a eight or 16 team playoff, it really cheapens the title of national champion and really cheapens and waters down the regular season, which I think is the best in sports. You know, you can drive around anywhere in the country, coast to coast on any fall Saturday. And that's the biggest thing going uh, in that hometown or that college town. Uh, and if you're going to be because with the fact that every game matters and you kind of got to run the table. So if you start to water that down, I fear that it'll be early November and you have Saban resting players like kind of the NFL players, uh, NFL coaches do. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'd have uh, the SEC title game. You'd have both guys just sitting their starting quarterbacks and because both already have a a locked bid in the the 16 team playoffs. So, you know, I'm a 14 guy. I didn't even hate the BCS, to be honest, Uh, because most years I got it right. I mean, if if, I guess 04 would be the exception where an undefeated power five didn't make it with that, that Auburn team. But for the most part, hey, especially nowadays, go undefeated. If you don't go undefeated, you open it up to, to debate. And uh, I guess the one thing I would tweak is if you could make the committee a little bit more transparent. I, I don't like the idea that the conference commissioners and former ADs behind closed doors. Uh, be, and I, I'm not saying that they're doing anything wrong, but it does carry that that stigma, especially online and among the Twitter fan base, where they, they always assume the worst. So they always assume, oh, they're just picking Alabama because of the money. Mm-hmm. Well, they're picking Alabama because of the best program, yeah, uh, and the best team. But but what I what I would get back to saying is maybe there was a way to fix the BCS formula and make it a, a computerized thing that picks the four teams. I like four; I think that's fair. But I'd like a better process to arriving at the four. We've talked about that a lot with like does the the current committee does it reward the right thing? So honestly, I'm not trying to knock the SEC here, and I know I do all the time on our other shows. I'm not trying to. It's just that when you have eight team conference schedules versus nine team or you have four team non-conference schedules versus three and the four include an fcs opponent and the other ones don't or you have you know certain schools that never play a non-conference away game they're they're playing nothing but neutral site games there becomes a kind of a competitive imbalance do we think that the, the current college football committee does it reward the right things well yeah i think that the committee probably has a pecking order of what they go through i mean undefeated power five conference champ is always going to make it in uh, and then from one law, once you, once you tag a loss on a team's resume, mm-hmm. you open it up for, you open it up for debate. And I'm not sure what goes on behind the closed doors. Again, getting back to that, I'm not trying to assume that it's, that it's negative, mm-hmm. but I don't really know the thought process. I, I don't know. They kind of already have in their minds, like, okay, the SEC is stronger than the Pac-12, uh, in, in their opinion. I mean, we don't know that, but, uh, if they just have that, that implicit bias in there that they're saying, all right, the SEC champ, they have to be a top four team. They're in. A Pac-12 team has to go undefeated. Like we don't know any of these any of these wild cards behind closed doors. But yeah, I, I think that uh, I don't think it does reward the best things because what, what's the incentive now for? Uh, so a good example is Ohio State. They're always scheduling another blue blood in the in the non-conference slate. Mm-hmm. Uh, like why should they keep uh, scheduling Oklahoma or you know a, a, another blue blood when they already have nine games in conference? They already are in in my opinion the toughest division, or at least the toughest like upper division with the Big Ten East, those four teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, you already have all of that. You have a crossover with Nebraska. 
and yeah, an extra league game compared to the SEC and the ACC, and no FCS team. So it, it just starts to add up pretty uh, unbalanced. And I didn't like the fact that there was considerations that a Georgia two-loss team could still make it in. They lost their conference championship, mm-hmm. uh, got blown out by LSU, uh, and then would have still, to some pundits, still made it. Still been a, a top four team in there. And then, uh, and then they go in the, into the Sugar Bowl, get out physical by Texas, and then of course the usual excuses come up that oh uh, they they didn't want to be there. Yeah, uh, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I think that there is some bias, at least among uh, you know the national media and amongst some of Twitter. But uh, again, there's another core that really wants to get back to the facts at hand and really dig into it a little bit more. Besides just which conference you're affiliated with, because when you look back at it, uh, the last three years the ACC has a winning record against the SEC. It's it's 19 to 17. Um, so, wow. so while you have, uh, while you have Bama at the top winning multiple national titles and it's been an all time run there, I mean, that doesn't make Vanderbilt better than, you know, an average ACC team. Just because Bama's at the top winning titles doesn't make the entire conference. So I, I know you guys follow me on Twitter. I try and present the facts. I've been called an SEC hater. I, th- I think maybe because I don't buy into the whole SEC bias thing, but I try and be right down the middle, but that puts me on the hater edge to them. You know what I'm saying? So they're kind um, of a weird conference like that, though. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm pro Big Ten, but I'm not weird about it. You know, I'm like, like right. I'm not like super happy that Ohio State's winning a ton. Like, if they were to win a ton of national championships, I'm like, yay, Ohio State, yay, Big Ten. You know, I'm more like, man, I'd like some of that. You know, you know, like, I want my team to win a little bit more, but the SEC, man, they are so happy to ride coattails. <laughs> it's crazy. It's like Kentucky will just chant it. I'm like, who are you talking to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless yeah, it's basketball. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you ever hear I mean, a conference uh, chant their own initials more? No. Well, only only in mocking the SEC now. Exactly. It's like mocking <laughs> Which will probably draw so. a penalty like horns down, right? <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. That's terrible. Jeez, yeah, sensitive. Well, well I'm a huge I'm a huge Rutgers fan, so what can I <laughs> <laughs> oh. You know, like I said, you know, you guys, uh, you have your 2019 season preview. It's going on sale on Monday, July 22nd. You've already kind of given a little bit of a of a preview to us about Nebraska on the West, but let's just talk a little bit Big Ten here. You don't have to give us your rankings, but just let's start with the West. What do you kind of foresee with, you know, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and, and those teams? You know, how do you kind of see some of that playing out? Yeah, I mean, I really see the Big Ten West has, has really improved its profile. I mean, uh, remember a couple years back, uh, it was really just Wisconsin and then nothing below them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you have a lot of positive momentum on a lot of these programs. Uh, Second-year coaching boost with Frost. Uh, Jeff Brom really building something at Purdue. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, that's another thing I put out. I was really, uh, really impressed with what he's done there in two years. And a, a lot of the comments were, oh, they're only seven and six. Well, yeah, you got to look in context. The last 10 years there, they have been absolutely terrible. Yep. The Daryl, yep. the Daryl Hazel years was a disaster. So yeah, to get the seven wins with that roster was incredible. So I think, uh, Purdue is moving in the right direction. Uh, Minnesota, they have a, a ton of returning production. On both sides of the ball, they were very young last year and, and still decently, uh, decently talented. Although I'm not completely sold on Fleck, well, the, the jury's still out on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of, a, kind of a quirky dude. He's just uh, a hard one to read. It's like, I, do you take yeah. him seriously? I, I mean, I'll tell you, you see him do good things, but it's like, oh, man, I'll tell I you just, what, I, it's he, hard to back. He's a hell of a coach. He really is a hell of a coach. The issue is quarterback for them right now, and that's such an important spot. And they're still not. As far as I think he'd like them to be in year three. All right, continue. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I, I watched. Uh, yeah, I watched the Minnesota spring game, and it's still uh, Zach Anikstead and uh, I think Tanner Morgan's the other guy. And mm-hmm. really, what it is, it's a very simplistic offense. It's really just the, the ground pound, but then when they do throw it, it's just a slam pattern. So I think that 
you know, Big Ten coordinators aren't dumb. They're going to catch on to that. It's like a, you know, a two-trick pony, if you will. Um, so uh, that was kind of a trendy pick across the country to maybe threaten for a, a West title, but I'm very low on Minnesota. And then even some more positive momentum relatively. I mean, Illinois is bottom of the barrel, but uh, they did establish a, a pretty explosive running game last year. And then what they did this offseason was they really, quote-unquote, they won the, the transfer portal this year. Uh, a ton of big uh, profile former recruits coming in, kind of giving them a boost uh, in, the, in their talent level. And then uh, who else? Northwestern, I touched on them earlier. I don't think they were that great of a team, to be honest. Uh, I think that everything went their way. They got every penalty, <laughs> like I talked about. They got it. They really squeezed out nine wins, if you want to put it that way. They're and all the credits, all the, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, all the credit to Fitzgerald and yep. that staff, but still, I don't think that that's sustainable. <laughs> you just, um, just so, can't be. But I, I feel like we say this every year, and then Kane Coulter runs for another 150 yards on, on a team. So yeah, the, so their it's ability never goes to make away. everybody ugly is their. It, that's their. That's their secret sauce, man. They just, yeah. we're going to make you ugly, too. Play our game. Good luck. And then the other two West contenders I have up there with Nebraska are obviously Iowa and Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin really took a step back defensively, which is something we hadn't seen in a while. Uh, a lot of that was injuries, but still it's uh, a bit unknown this year coming up. But the big key with them is uh, it's twofold. Their offensive line loses four out of five guys in yeah. most of the NFL. I know that they've been great at reloading there, but still losing four guys in one offseason is pretty unique for them. Uh, and, the, and their quarterback position, their quarterback play has been terrible. They might even start a five-star Graham, uh, Graham Mertz coming in as a true freshman. But uh, reports out of spring say that he's still number two uh, behind uh, behind the incumbent Jack Cohn. Yep. And uh, it might be one of those Clemson situations where, you know, the incumbent starts the first couple games and then the, the higher ceiling guy takes over. But still, at, at this point, that's a huge uncertainty. And they draw a terrible East Slate. Uh, and then lastly, Iowa. Yeah, I mean, Iowa, I'm really impressed with uh, what they have in the trenches. Uh, even watching that Iowa-Nebraska game, you can kind of sense that the physicality level was different from both programs. For sure. Um, and the hope for Nebraska would be that maybe that gap is, you know, has been minimized with a second year under the strength and conditioning program of Frost. But that was definitely apparent last year. They have uh, a top five national O-line and a top five national D-line. It's just a matter of, I think, a lack of playmakers on offense. They lose uh, Fonten, Hawkinson, two first-round tight ends. So, uh, and uh, Nate Stanley, he, he's solid. He's a very solid player, but I don't think that him alone will win them games. He's going to need some some surrounding cast to step up. And then it leaves us at the top of Nebraska, uh, who I, I am high on. But yeah, you know, so it's funny with uh, with preseason polling goes, where I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, November, December. I'm thinking, wow, like I think I have a gem with this Nebraska team. Like this is a a much better team than anyone's given them credit for. Uh, and then I guess slowly, but slowly, but surely, I guess everyone catches on and then even takes it too far. You know, now I see stuff. One guy had him in the playoff, uh, Martinez for the Heisman, which I do think is possible, but for the Heisman, it's more of a, the team has to still be top 15, top 10. You, got, you, know, so. you, you need 10 wins, you know? Yeah. I mean, minimum, um, you need 10 wins. Oh crap. I bought my tickets to NYC already, but well. you know, it's interesting <laughs> though about the Heisman that it's, it's shifted so much where underclassmen are so much more eligible than oh, they ever yeah, used to be. Yeah. Like for a sophomore to yeah. come off a four win season to be even kind of considered, that's like your Johnny Menzel. I mean, those guys, not to give him credit, but like you never talked about that, you know, before, like sophomores were not in consideration. Anyway, c- continue. Can, yeah, continue I, talking about our Heisman candidate uh, quarterback. <laughs> no, yeah, that, that's a good point because uh, I remember when uh, I think it was actually the Crouch year when uh, he was going up against Rex Grossman. Uh, yeah. That was like a knock on him. It was like, oh, well, he's a sophomore. He can't win it for right. uh, Rex Grossman. So he yeah. was like thrown out of the race. So it's definitely shifted now. You're right. With Nebraska, another key besides cleaning up the penalties uh, would be for this defense to just 
just catch the interceptions, man. Oh. They're throwing you the ball. And I think that uh, that's a, a key staple of this uh, Eric Shenander defense where, um, mm-hmm. you know, some defenses out there are very safe and conservative. This one's attacking. He's going to bring blitzes. He's, he's blitz happy. Uh, and there's two things that come from that. One, uh, yeah, you're taking gambles. You may give up some longer chunk plays here and there, which I guess isn't that bad a deal if you're getting the ball back to AJ Martinez quicker. But, right. um, <laughs> but yeah, so either you're giving up longer plays, but to make that gamble worth it, uh, you're going to get a lot of negative plays in the backfield, but you need to be able to convert the takeaways. You got to be able yeah. to get the ball back and uh, and make the gamble worth it. So uh, I remember certain. Uh, uh, there's no real stat to track this, but just from watching games, so many balls were dropped in the secondary, and, and oh, you think yeah. like, oh, there, there's the impact play. Oh, now he dropped it. The Purdue game hinged on you know Rondell Moore kicks that ball up in the air, and we dropped that. It would have been a sure pick six plug yeah <laughs> you know and, and, and we yeah. drop it and they go on to kick a field goal i mean that that changes the game we are replacing in the secondary two and we all love our huskers but two four eight forty safeties you know what i'm saying like the, the speed that we're yeah. going to change back there i feel like that's the difference in you know like the chenander playmaking ability like just that alone the four well, i mean speed speed you can't yeah. coach that right and it's going to get faster just by re- by replacing a couple of players yeah i think even going off that speed angle uh with the staff pulling jojo doman down to outside backer yep. from the secondary mm-hmm. so now you you essentially have a, a you know a, a normal secondary speed level player at outside backer now he had some play he had some impact plays there i think against ohio state so he's already shown he can kind of contribute so yeah there's a lot of pieces to to like on the defense obviously muhammad barry Really, it, it's funny. He was the first guy in a while, I guess, since the Pelini years, where I felt like, like, damn, that's a black shirt right there. Yeah. You know, he just had, he just had the the energy, the emotion, and it's it's sad, but that that was really missing for a while from Nebraska. Yeah. So it's great to see that back, and uh, I think that that'll be hopefully infectious to the, the rest of the unit there. Absolutely. I, you know, one of the things I think about with these predictions is that right now Nebraska and Iowa each had 14 votes tied for first in the Big Ten West, but there were five teams that had at least one first place vote. And of those five teams, they were basically voted anywhere from first to sixth. That's how wide open the West feels right now. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, the Wild West right now. I mean, to transition a little bit to the East, (laughs) and you've mentioned, Brett, a couple times here. I mean, the East is always top heavy. I mean, you have both Michigans, you have Ohio State and Penn State, you know, kind of from a pecking order standpoint just who's got the best returning programs right now? I mean, Michigan's up there, but I mean, what do you what are you kind of looking at in the East? Yeah, I think you hit it right there. It's almost like it's two different leagues. It's like you have your top four, uh, and I'll give a spoiler alert that uh, the top four there are all in my top eighteen, uh, with Penn oh, State wow. down at eighteen, okay. and then you go all the way down to get to number five, Indiana, all the way down to forty ninth. So oh, wow. it really it really is quite a divide, more than ever, really. Yeah, I mean, from the bottom up, uh, yeah, Rutgers, Maryland. You have Maryland going through a coaching change. They've recruited decently, and I think Mike Loxley's a good hire. He uh, he helped to revolutionize the, um, the Alabama offense last year, and he's a hometown guy. I think he'll be able to get some recruits out of that DMV area, uh, but not enough in, in year one. Uh, Rutgers is a total train wreck. Uh, they're, they're the worst <laughs> team in Power 5 football, uh, and legitimately, they are number 65 out of 65. <laughs> uh, they should not be in the Big then, Ten. Uh, it's not hyperbole. That's that. Yeah, yeah they, should be in the, they should be in the Patriot League, FCS. <laughs> you, just, um, you just made Boomer very happy. He's not on the show right now, but you just made him very happy. Good. He'll appreciate that then. <laughs> Yeah, and then the upper chunk, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely strong at the top. I mean, you have Ohio State and Michigan. Everyone's kind of going with Michigan. Um, I'm actually going with Ohio State on that Are side. Are you? Nice. Yeah. Okay. 
And right away, I can feel Michigan Twitter calling me a hater. But remember <sighs> that I actually had them very high last year. So, uh, but no, with uh, yeah, with, with Ohio State first, a lot of the issue last year was defensively. And uh, looking mm-hmm. back on it, they were extremely young. They actually have the sixth most sixth most uh, defensive production returning. Okay. Uh, so a lot of that was youth. It's all five-star, four-star you know, blue-chip talent. Mm-hmm. And the key is that this year, so if you remember a lot of their games, they did look kind of slow at the linebacker level. Part of that was hesitation because they, that scheme was so complex by Greg Schiano. And what happened was Ryan Day brought in a new coordinator, uh, Greg Madison, who really just took the playbook and threw it out the window. He's like, you know what, go play. Go play loose. So I think you're going to see that team fly around the field on defense, play you know more loosely. They have the athletes for it. So oh yeah, exactly. Sense. So yeah, turn those athletes loose there. I think it's going to be great. And um, the offense is pretty much loaded again at every position except for the question mark being a quarterback. But that question mark is the number one overall player in the 2018 class. So uh, yeah, I know we saw him at times at Georgia in more of a wildcat role. But uh, I actually talked with Brian Hartline, uh, their, their wide receiver coach there, and he was talking about how in practice he's really improved uh, in the pocket really keeping his eyes downfield because he has the legs. He can take off at any moment and, and pick up 10 yards, but he's really trying to hone in on that uh, that passing ability. So I think great things coming from there at Ohio so, State. Brett, Brett, I got a question for you here. I'm going to knock on wood for a second as I ask okay. it. There, I knocked on wood. Husker fans are, are crazy worried about, obviously, what would happen if, if Martinez would get hurt. And we're all worried about that. And nobody wants their starting quarterback hurt. If you're Ohio State, though, right now, and what's happened with the transfer portal, and you talked about that a little bit earlier, I mean, Fields, if anything would happen to Fields, I mean, what kind of situation is Ohio State in? Yeah, they're they're in a world of hurt because, yeah, so they've ran off uh, Tate Martell to South Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew Baldwin has yeah. transferred to TCU since uh, since spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're talking Burroughs about uh, LSU, too. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Burroughs at LSU. So, yeah, they're, they're in a world of hurt there. And uh, the one thing to note is that he is a scrambler he's a runner like i mentioned so he's gonna probably take more contact than uh than what dwayne haskins would have last year so mm-hmm. um that was my you know, question to, to be, with, i'm sorry but i was like with, no, with justin fields it, like when i watched him and I'm, I'm not trying to critique film or anything like that when he played with georgia it was it was for the most part it seemed to be kind of scrub time you know like he just he was pretty quick to run and he kind of stared down his wide receivers and then you know, you fast forward and you kind of watch the spring game and it, it sort of looked like the same thing. And I understand, you know, spring games aren't optimal conditions or anything like that. But I'm also a little surprised at the preseason predictions of him sometimes. I mean, is that all based off of a five-star ranking? You know, And if it is, that's fine. But I'm like, but it cannot just be his production or what he's actually put on film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I watched the spring game. So there was one tweet, like the one highlight was a long 50 yard pass, but really the ball was underthrown. The receiver went up and made an incredible yeah. play over the defender. Right. Um, yeah. I think the passing game is still an unknown. I think it's untested. But he, I mean, he's very almost Manzellian in that he can scramble, extend plays, mm-hmm. uh, and then has the burner speed once he gets that. So he's definitely proven himself on tape as a runner. Yeah, um, he's got weapons around him. To oh get my it god, to. the top three wide receiver yeah. crew. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, so many weapons around him, um, and a pretty pretty proven uh, offensive staff too. So a little bit of that is is faith that he'll improve on the passing. And uh, and keep in mind, I mean. Not all guys can be the breakout freshman guys. I mean, it used to be back in the day, it'd be unheard of, you know, a freshman playing. So, yeah, to make some freshman mistakes, I mean, even Martinez had some of his moments, but it was well, mostly sure. clean. Uh, you got to remember, these guys are right out of high school, not even redshirting. So, it's kind of, you got to take it with a grain of salt. So, I mean, I think a second year, a full year of a spring ball, uh, whole fall camp again, I think you'll see a more refined product from both quarterbacks, from Martinez and from uh, Fields. So, he's got, yeah, he's got a ton of ceiling, but, you know, but in the reality of it, this is his first year starting. 
you know, regardless right. of his athletic ability and how well this offense fits him, you know, he's going to have to go through some growing pains. The kid is an unbelievable talent, yeah. though. Unbelievable. So, so you've mentioned Ohio State, and Michigan has been the team that most people have been talking up in the East. I mean, what's your take on the Wolverines? Yeah, so really with, with Michigan, I mean, they had it on a silver platter last year. They could have finally broken this Ohio State streak and mm-hmm. broken into the Big Ten title game and likely beaten Northwestern again and probably gone to the playoffs. They had it all there for them, and uh, they let up 62. So, yeah. I mean, they were, uh, I, I love Don Brown as a defensive coordinator. I think he's great, but I think he was a bit stubborn. They stayed in man-to-man coverage the whole game and just let Ohio State's speedy receivers run across their routes and uh, all over them. And they, they wouldn't adjust. So, coming into this year, um, yeah, they're revamping their offense, which I'm a little bit, a little hesitant about because for the last four years, Jim Harbaugh has really built Stanford North, uh, bringing in a great offensive line and kind of a power run, ball control kind of team. So, to overnight become a, you know, a modern air raid team. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not very confident with that. Uh, and then defensively, they do lose a lot of key playmakers from last year, Rashawn Gary, uh, Chase Winovich, Devin Bush, uh, some secondary players as well. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't know why they're assumed to be a lock for the playoffs. So I, I was, I at least came in questioning it. And then I actually fell on Ohio State side when we, when we finished it up. And then actually pretty close behind them at Michigan State. Oh. We touched on them earlier about a, a staff that's always developing players and, and really maximizing talent uh, that that took a, a step back last year, mostly due to injuries. I mean, the receiver core was absolutely destroyed. Uh, quarterback was banged up with Lewerke out for parts of the year, and some of the defenders were out too. So they get everything back. They had a couple guys that could have gone pro along the defensive line. They're coming back uh, for their senior years. Kenny Willickis, Raekwon Williams. So I think defensively they're very strong, yeah. enough to keep them above uh, number four Penn State who themselves have a pretty decent uh, defense as well. But um, I'm a little bit skeptical with James Franklin here uh, because his two or three peak years were all with Joe Moorhead, this offensive genius that came yeah, in from right. Fordham, yep. um, kind of revolutionized the offense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's down in the SEC now. And once he left, well, also Saquon Barkley left, but yeah. still, they have been able to, <laughs> that hurts. Um, but still, they had a, a big Wait, But his of, backup um, was a what, four or five star, wasn't he? Yeah, Miles Sanders yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and even uh, Ricky Slade is a, a five-star guy. So, right. But yeah, more so, uh, McSorley was huge there. He was a proven winner. And I, mm-hmm. I think that without him, um, I don't know. I saw uh, there's there's some serious question marks on the offensive side of the ball, enough to put them fourth, which uh, I wrote this in my preview. Fourth in the East, I mean, that'd be right up there, number one or number two in the West. So it's, it's really tough how unbalanced it is this year. That's all only good enough for fourth for Penn State. If Urban Meyer wasn't gone, it's Ohio State clearly, though, right? Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, the the reason why I'm a little bit less uh, worried about that is because we did already see a Ryan Day Ohio State for four yeah. weeks last exactly. year. Well, and that's true. Um, yeah. And his influence really actually improved the offense. Uh, under Urban Meyer, they had been a 65-35 mm-hmm. uh, breakdown between running and passing play calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, very run heavy, which, which to their credit, it worked. It was a ton of quarterback power with, with Barrett. Uh, and Braxton Miller back in the day. But anyways, uh, Ryan Day comes in. They, he moves him to 50-50, which doesn't sound that crazy, but it's actually top 20 in most passing attempts. Huh. Um, so they were kind of pass-heavy, uh, and it really works for their personnel. They have that, that wide receiver stable, spread the ball around, get their guys in, in open space. So I think we already saw a, pretty much a Ryan Day offense, at least. So we saw his influence there, and they elevated themselves in almost every category offensively. Yeah, and that's um, that certainly made sense with Haskins at QB too to throw it to that, uh, yeah. you know, to, to yeah. kind of balance it out a little more. So I feel like I've already kind of seen a bit of the Ryan Day Ohio State program, yeah. and 
And I like his move defensively. I think that if you have that talent advantage and, and real talent, let him go play. Yeah, having him hesitate in, in coverage and assignment football and stuff like that, it just doesn't make sense. So I think scrapping that playbook and letting them play loose, they have the talent to match anyone in the conference and, and nationally for that matter. So yeah, I, I, I feel confident, uh, pretty confident with the staff going forward. Well, Brad, so, I mean, we're kind of coming to a closer, but just what are your feelings about the season? We're a couple of weeks away. I mean, just. College football as a whole, here, here's your, your chance to just kind of – what's your final take? Well, I, I did give away Ohio State winning the Big Ten, but otherwise I think that uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some new teams win these conferences, I, and you'll see that in my preview. Uh, I think a lot of the you know the last four or five-year chalk, I think there will be some movement at the top. Now, I, I will say I think Clemson is the best team overall, and I think they're going to be in the playoff again given how easy that schedule and conference is. So mm-hmm. you can throw Clemson out of this discussion, but the other three Power Five leagues, I have a new champion arising. And, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm pretty confident in all three of them to do so. So I think you'll see a little bit more of a shakeup than, and I think that's great. I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need some, some fresh blood in the playoff bracket and, and more so just, uh, just on the national scene and national discussion, uh, you know, top 10, top 15. I, I love all that too. So I think you're going to see some new, some new programs come up. Uh, I always look forward to seeing a second year coach and how, you really start to see his program develop. So teams like A&M and Florida and obviously Nebraska starting to see their, their tenures develop because all three of those names actually had great improvements from 2017 to 2018. And uh, I want to see even more here in 2019. So I don't know if we mentioned it on here, but uh, I see a lot of complaints about the Alabama-Clemson kind of duopoly at the top. Um, yeah, we understand that dynasties come and go. But my thing is, I don't think that it really ruins the sport, even though some people are saying that. I think that, you know, I love diving into all 65 of these Power 5 programs. I can draw excitement and, and energy out of, you know, a, a Thursday night Pac-12 game or a, a Utah versus Arizona State game. Like, I, I, I think it's really what you put yourself into, and you can really enjoy every game if you really dig into it. So I want to encourage people to kind of get away from all that matters is the playoff, you know, that whole thing. So really digging into these programs and, and really uh, really enjoying the season for what it's worth. Right because, because because I guarantee it'll be uh, 12 months later, we're sitting here in, in April, and you're like, damn, I wish any game was on, <laughs> get some action. Yeah. So enjoy it. It, co- it, comes, uh, it comes so quick. Just take it all in and enjoy every Saturday. Brett, you're a man after my own heart. I 100% agree. It goes by so fast. Well, Monday, July 22nd, the uh, 2019 season preview of Pick 6 Previews comes out. Uh, Brett, how can uh, how can the Redcasters and anyone else listening uh, get their hands on that? Yeah, so it'll be available online uh, through our website, pick6previews.com. Uh, I'll be tweeting out a lot more information between now and then uh, from our Twitter account, which is at pick6previews. It's all spelled out and uh, in one name. You'll see our handle in the big Redcast uh, feed from today's show. But yeah, so I'll be tweeting out how to, how to access it from there. It's essentially a 200-page PDF download, and uh, it's printable. I have it in a printable format, so you can just go right to your printer, print it out. Uh, and it's as if you're getting a magazine right there. Nice. Uh, we're talking about six, all 65 programs, full in depth, you know, deep dives into them, about 1200 to 1700 words per team. Uh, again, that's like three times what you get out of a magazine. I really dig into it. And then a ton of stat metrics and stuff that we've been discussing throughout the show. I mean, some of those things like player development, win conversion, uh, some program history stats, like most wins, you know, or certain time intervals, how my game grader formula works. Uh, so a ton of stuff in there. Uh, I'm really excited for it to be finalized. Uh, the, the design is taking more, longer than I thought it would, but we're almost there. 
and uh, yeah, that'll be, that'll be ready Monday, July 22nd. And uh, if you do go uh, and, and pick it up, I'd love to hear some feedback and just tweet at us, direct message us, email us. I love getting the feedback and, and uh, engaging with our fan base on Twitter because that's what makes it great. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I'm, you know, Redcasters, this guy, he knows his stuff. This was this has been such a fun conversation. I, I mean, I, I've had a blast. I mean, yeah. I wish we could have got more into what you were talking about too. I'd love to, you know, chat with you again about this because I'm fascinated with what you do and I love the passion you talk about what you know you get to do in life you're just digging in on college football and figuring it all out yeah we're 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 in the fishbowl of nebraska but it's it's cool to hear people from the outside you share the same passion about college football that we do so brett thank you so much yeah thanks thanks for all the compliments and the feedback and uh I really appreciate having me on and, uh, and, and the constant engagement on Twitter and, uh, we'll keep it up for the year. I think right. uh, you're going to have, uh, going to have a good fall over there in Lincoln and, uh, <laughs> excited for you guys. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya. Bye. And now, trivia time. Hey, Boomer, we have had a, a little bit of social media on a question in particular from a Brian who was really questioning why Nebraska calls themselves NU opposed to UNL. He, he said that in his mind, NU will always be Northwestern University. Uh, apparently, Brian's a, a Big Ten guy. And um, I mean, I, I think our response was like, well, we've always called ourselves NU. But it's a good question in the sense that we are the University of Nebraska. We don't call ourselves U of N, even though there's other schools out there like Kentucky that says UK. And so we've clearly made the decision to, to go with the NU moniker, even though it doesn't actually accurately depict um, the university's name. Now, my quick take on this before I hand it over to you is there's many other schools that do the same thing. And I know in the Big 8 in particular, there's Colorado, abbreviates with CU, Kansas, abbreviates with KU, Oklahoma, OU, all of those are the University of and then the state. So we're not uh, an outlier here, but uh, it's interesting of when did Nebraska start um, calling themselves NU. Do you have any information on that, historically speaking? Yeah, I know. I, I, I wanted to look into this. I know Donkey had responded to Brian on social media. Like he'd said, we'd been, you know, as far as most people's memories, were always NU. And if you go back and look at helmets in, what was the 60s or 70s, they were even had NU on the side of the helmets for quite a while. And the story goes, we only started using the N because we ran out of U stickers. So, you know, there are apparently <laughs> still some NUs even into the 70s, just from some of the players that still were lucky enough to get U's on it. And I, I wanted to look into it a little further. So I kind of went back and started. And if you go back and look at the very beginning, we actually did refer to ourselves on an almost consistent basis as UN or U of N, especially in our you know early years, you know, our earliest sports teams in the you know 1890s were all you know U of N. And as you saw in our baseball throwback uniforms we wore this year, you know, it was UN or U of N on those throwback uniforms. And that was that was the common abbreviation for Nebraska. If you go back and look at the early chants we used to use, um, it was always UN or UNI, short for university, I assume. So uni, uh, back then. Yeah, uni. Yeah, they would call uni, and they would rhyme it with varsity and Nebraska and things like that, <laughs> or Nebraska. You know, they would switch Bruce that in there. Yeah, so it was it was the the common name. Yes, we were U of N, and if you go back and look at the yearbooks and and things like that, that was how we referred to for the first you know gosh almost you know fifty years of the the university sports and and uh, the references that we did. And I went back and kind of checked a lot of media and read a bunch of old articles. And you know the old days style guides were a little more you know interesting, and they rarely abbreviated back in the day. It, it was decades until you started seeing abbreviations pop up. We were pretty regularly Nebraska. 
and most of the references. I did start seeing, uh, you know, even in the early days, sometimes you would see references to Nebraska University and the Nebraska State University in some of the early articles that would pop up in the, you know, 1890s here and there. There was a school chant that they used to have that called this, uh, you know, Nebraska U at one point. Um, you know, the typical, you know, there's no place like Nebraska song, you were Daryl Nebraska U, that came about in the 1920s is when it's commonly credited to. So Nebraska U was still kind of a thing then and there. The first time I started seeing any regularly being used was the 1930s is when it really became the most common. You'd see the marching band start spelling out NU at that point. You'd see articles in the newspaper such as Alf Landon pulling for NU against Minnesota. So thanks, Alf. That really helped. So, um, <laughs> But I, I wanted to dig a little deeper and try to see when this transition may have first happened the first time it was ever really put in some sort of publication where NU specifically was used. And what I've been able to track down, the earliest reference I've seen in some sort of official kind of university or, or newspaper article was actually be right around 1912 and 1913. Right around there is when the university moved the med center to Omaha and the pre-meds, the pre-med school, uh, club here at the University of Nebraska, they were originally the pre-medical association. They switched their name to the NU meds or new meds at that point. And uh, in the 1912 yearbook, there was a interesting little uh, blurb they threw in there about uh, one of the most uh, oh influential underclassmen that they had, a gentleman they called Beanie, whose identity I can't quite confirm if he even really existed. <laughs> but the reference to it, and I will quote this directly from the yearbook, is, and I quote, but the thing that forever established Beanie's supremacy as a school's premier product occurred at a track meet in Des Moines. While the remainder of the NU athletes were reposing on their cots, having retired per instructions of the coach promptly at 9 p.m., Beanie was out training on Manhattan cocktails, mint freezes, Pilsner, and other gladsome concoctions. So, end quote. So, whoever Beanie was, he was certainly a man after our own hearts and really kind of blazed our trail at the university. So, I salute you, Beanie. And that is the earliest reference I could find to us being NU. And why we transitioned away from UN to NU, that's probably anybody's guess at this point. Well, my guess is it just sounds better. And I also want to know what a mint freeze is. And I want. Yes, we'll be researching that too. That sounds excellent in this kind of weather. Yes, that will be a Go Big Red Pass cocktail at some point this season. Excellent, Boomer. Well, you have come through on the historical reference of NU or UN. And uh, I'm sure our listeners appreciate it. So for now, let's call that a Go Big Redcast. You, you, you and I.